Good morning, Gak family, the brave, the few who came out. Some are stuck at the top of driveways, some are stuck at the bottom of driveways. Others called this morning and said, I am sick, so a little rough this morning, but thank you everybody for coming in and working hard and taking over where you weren't supposed to be, and so as long as we're together, right? Good to see you. Uh, woke up this morning in a, in a brand new year uh, and found that there were some tragic circumstances that have befallen me. Apparently all my pants have shrunken in the laundry, at least on the, the waistline. Everything's tighter. I don't know what's going on. Have you been like me this year, eating a lot? So we've been enjoying family and friends and eating and celebrating and... I'm ready to drink more water and eat less bread and pastries. and. But I want to talk about our new year. We thought as a group of elders it would be good to start off the new year with some challenges and a, a refreshed view of why we're here and who we are. And so we thought this is really KT's idea. He texted me one day and said, how about we do a, a creation mandate series? And and here's the title of the series for this month, Finding Purpose in God's Creation Blueprint. Finding Purpose in God's Creation Design, how He's made us, how He's ordained us to be, who we are and what we're meant to be. And so here's the title for this morning's specific message, Expressing God's Image in 2023. We're going to have to get used to that. Expressing God's Image in 2023. So, what does it mean to be made in the image of God and how are we to express that in this new year? Just for, for those of you who maybe need a little refresher, and we always do, what, what do you mean creation mandate? What is this creation mandate? Well, if you open your Bibles to Genesis 1, that's where we're primarily going to be today. We're going back to foundations. Genesis chapter 1, the creation mandate, it's really captured specifically in chapter 1, verse 28, but I'm going to go back to verse 26 for the context. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then here's the crux of the creation mandate. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you have a set of resolutions yet? Do you have a resolution? Do you have a set vision or purpose for this new year? Well, you know, we should set those. That's okay. Some people like to, some don't. But as a general rule, before we begin to form specific goals and purposes for our year, or our life, we need to deal with the more fundamental questions. Questions like, who are we? And what are we here for? When you find a new device or thing to tinker with, you first don't ask, what does it do? You should ask, what is it for? What is it? What is it for? What's its purpose? 
So in this series, we will go back to the foundation and we'll look at God's creation design, his blueprint using his manual, and we'll look at his ordinances, his decrees, his orders, his mandates for mankind. What are we for? And we want to find our purpose in his greater purpose, don't we? In his creation blueprint, in his mandate. And so if God mandates that man should be fruitful and multiply, procreation, marriage, and if we're to fill this earth and rule over it, then how shall we live today in 2023? But first, who does God give this responsibility to? This, this mandate to procreate and to marry and to rest and to work and to steward and to have responsibility and to rule. Who does he give this to? Well, none other than mankind, those who bear the image of God. And so today, let's consider what the image of God is in man and how it's to be expressed in our daily lives this year. So how will we express God's image in 2023? But let's ask him for help first. Father, we are thankful that we have another year. You've given us breath in our lungs, and you've given us a new day. You've given us a fresh year. We're thankful that we can move into the future with future mercies and grace. We're thankful for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, help us today to refine our worldview, to think properly about who you are and who we are in light of who you are and what you've created us for. Help us this year to move into it with purpose, to do all things, whether it's parenting or our marriages or our single life, or how we approach work, or how we approach our resources. Help us to use it and do it all for your glory. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the most fundamental question after the question of what is God or who is God would be, what is man? What is man? That's the most fundamental question for us today. What is a man and what is our purpose? There is a secular humanist named Arthur Schopenhauer. He was a philosopher of pessimism, if you will. And he was sitting one day in a park in Germany, and he was looking somewhat shabby and disheveled. And the park keeper approached him on the bench, thinking he was a homeless person, and gruffly asked him, Who are you? And to this question, the philosopher bitterly replied, I wish to God I knew. Well, you know, the funny thing is that only when we know who God is and his design for us, do we know who we are and what our purpose is? I wish to the Lord I knew. Well, we can know who we are and what we're here for. You know, the various worldviews out there, they do have a take on man. And so their worldview, their perspective on mankind shapes the way they look at man and how they value man and how they treat human beings, how they look at human rights, how they look at the unborn. There are implications to our worldviews. And what happens is these worldviews tend to be either overly pessimistic about man or overly optimistic about mankind. Quick survey. Consider the pessimism of our day. Often it's the result of naturalistic thought, naturalism. It's the worldview that says all there is is nature. All there is is the stuff in the box. There's no one outside the cosmos. All there is is the physical, material world. There's no supernatural, no God, heaven, angels, no afterlife. All you have is a brain 
gray matter in the skull. There's no soul or immaterial mind or person. This worldview includes atheism, of course. There is no God. Humanism, right? Hedonism, all there is to life is just live for the now. Pursue pleasure, because that's all there is. Carpe diem, seize the day. Or materialism, which says all you should do is pursue stuff, because that's really all there is, is the stuff in the box. Or nihilism, which says life is meaningless. What's the purpose? Existentialism, humanism, secular humanism, those all fit under the category of naturalism. And so all there is in reality is the physical material world, and science is the answer to everything. This worldview tends to be or lead to a pessimism in life. What's the purpose? Essentially, man is the result of mindless, endless chance, cause, time, processes, the Darwinian evolutionary process. Humans are just another animal, highly evolved species, no different in value or dignity than any other animal. And so you have guys like Albert Camus, who was a French secular philosopher, who said, therefore, really, if this is true, if man is just an animal and has no ultimate purpose, the only great question for man to wrestle with now is this question. Should we commit suicide? Peter Singer is from Down Under. He's a secular ethicist, and he says, he argues that if you believe that humans are more special than any other creepy, crawly creature then you're a speciesist. There are racists, and then there are speciesists. And shame on you for having a high view of mankind. So some of these worldviews tend to be rather pessimistic and down on mankind. They give us a downgrade. They demote us. You're just the product of time chance. You're stardust. You're walking, talking germs. And there is basically everything is ultimately absurd. That'll get you up in the morning and get you going, right? On the other side of the fence, you have a worldview that is overly optimistic about mankind. Take, for example, transcendentalism, or we would call it cosmic humanism. This category of worldview tends to say that the physical world is an illusion. The material world is not what there is. It's all spiritual. It's a spiritual world, all immaterial. Man is simply the emanation, the expression of the divine. It's not atheism, it's pantheism. Everything is God and God is everything. I'm God, you're God, and really your goal in the morning is to get up and look in the mirror and say, I am God. Sounds like something that happened in the garden with a serpent. There is nothing material, it's only the immaterial. And so I'm God, you're God, everything's God, and there's no distinction between creator and creation. There's some real problems with this worldview, especially when it comes to the question of evil. If we're all divine and everything is God, then where does this sin thing come from? Can we even talk about sin or evil? Anyway, I'm God, you're God, and basically this is Middle Eastern, Eastern views, Hinduism, Buddhism, it's more popular in our culture in the form of the new agey stuff. So naturalism gives man a demotion, making us essentially animals with no ultimate significance, and transcendentalism, cosmic humanism, this Eastern thought, gives man a major promotion. We are no different than God. God isn't out there. God is here. Where do we go from here? 
Where do we find some balance, some sanity? Where do we find reality that matches what we see in the real world? I think the the great English Bible teacher, his name was John Stott, I think he captures the solution perfectly, the biblical solution. He says, what we need is neither the easy optimism of, say, humanists, nor do we need the dark pessimism of the cynic, but the radical realism of the Bible. The Bible gives us a realistic view. We don't need to be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. We need to be biblically realistic in our view of man. And it's a balanced view, I think, that Scripture gives us. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, he he captured the balance that the Bible gives us about man. He says, man's greatness and man's wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach both the balance. And so when we do consider this Genesis account of man, it corresponds with what we see in the real world, what we experience with ourselves and other people. We find that man is fallen and broken this side of Genesis 3, this side of the fall. We are broken. We are sinful. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else. I I know that because I know myself. Nevertheless, on the balance, we are unique and we're made in God's image and so we have great dignity and value. So, in summary, the balance is we are unworthy and yet we have worth. We have depravity and yet we have great dignity. And so, today I want to emphasize our worth, our our purpose as image bearers. You know, it's this beautiful portrayal of man as having dignity and value is captured so beautifully in Psalm 8. You should look at Psalm 8. You don't need to do it now. I'll read it. But it's David's psalm, Psalm 8, as he's a shepherd boy and he's, I'm assuming he's laying on his back with his hands behind his head, looking up at the Judean stars and skies. He's watching over his father's sheep and he writes in this psalm, Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place... What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? Those are great questions. He feels that shrinking feeling under the stars. Who am I that you would consider me? I feel so insignificant. And yet he knows that in God's perspective, he is significant in significance because he goes on after asking, who am I that you would think of me or can be concerned for me? He writes in verse 5, Yet you have made man a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, and you have crowned us with glory. You've crowned us with honor. You have given man dominion, rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under man's feet. Wow. Dignity, rule, responsibility, stewardship. There's, there's a reason to get up in the morning. Where does David get this exalted, dignified view of mankind? The foundation. Genesis 1. And so there's the creation mandate in Genesis 1 where man is called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, work it, steward it. But this call, this mandate, this purpose is dependent upon our having been made in God's image with certain capacities. So let's try and understand and flesh out what is the image of God in man and and how should it be expressed? What are the implications of our being image bearers? And, And my goal is that in seeing God's purpose for man, his design, his blueprints for us, we would seek to live our lives in light of that greater purpose 
and design. Let's consider part two, the image. Let's begin to flesh out what the image of God is in man. Well, let's do a quick survey of Genesis 1. This is kind of fun. Genesis 1, let's look at the account. Let's discover man's place in God's story. Let's look at the portrayal of man's status and purpose in the creation account. So it begins the best way that it could. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the most remarkable opening line. It's foundational to our worldview. And in fact, it actually counters a number of false ideas in the world, in our contemporary world and in the ancient world. It counters a number of false ideas about God and man and creation. Think about all those worldviews that this opening line counters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It counters atheism because in the beginning, God. God was there and he set it all into motion. He's the first uncaused cause. God was there. And so we are not the result of a random, blind, natural process, natural selection, time, mutations. There is a creator. It counters polytheism, many gods. In the beginning, God. If you look at Psalm 96, all there is in the presence of God is his splendor and glory. There are no gods. All the gods of the people are worthless, Psalm 96. They're nothing. They're the result of our imagination and our hands. There's one God. In the beginning, God, that counters materialism and naturalism. All there is is nature. All there is is the stuff in the box. There's no one outside the cosmos. What got it started? Why is the universe expanding? Why is it running down? There was a first cause. And there's intelligent design all around us screaming, there is a creator, in the beginning God. It counters pantheism. We mentioned that. Everything's God and God's everything. There's no distinction between the material, physical world and the creator. No, in the beginning God and he created. He existed outside of time and space. He created time and space and matter in the beginning God. So it counters a number of false ideas. But then in verse 2, we zoom in on the earth, having been spoken into existence by God. I mean, how powerful are you if you speak to nothing and nothing obeys you? Do you know what nothing is? My students will know. Nothing is what rocks think about. Aristotle. Nothing is what rocks think about. Hmm, that's, that'll keep you thinking. God spoke to nothing and nothing obeyed him, and we have everything. Yeah. That's our God. He speaks and he creates. But he creates this world, and in verse 2, the earth was formless, without shape. It was void. It was empty. It was darkness over the face of the deep. Not a very hospitable place when we get started here in verse 2. It's void. It's formless. It's empty. It's dark. It's watery. Would you want to live there? And so the rest of the creation count, verses 3 on, up to verse 27, we have God eliminating those original conditions. The emptiness. He eliminates the emptiness, the formlessness. He eliminates the darkness. He eliminates the wateriness. And he begins to fashion a hospitable world for man to dwell in. He begins to form and he fills. There's order. And day one through three, 
God forms and he shapes the world. He creates these locations, these habitations. And then in the corresponding days, days four, five, and six, he fills the locations with inhabitants. There's order. There's purpose. Day one, verses three through five. Day one, God eliminates the darkness and he creates light. God said, let there be light. And poof, there is light. And so God calls the light day and the darkness night. On the corresponding day, day four, verses 14 through 19, he fills the day with the great light, the sun, and he fills the night with the light of the moon and the stars too, like an afterthought. Day two, verses six through eight, God eliminates the wateriness. He separates the waters above from the waters below, and he creates an expanse. This would be everything you see when you look up at the sky. On the corresponding day, day 5, verses 20 through 23, God now fills the sky, the expanse, with flying creatures. And the sea, he fills with fish and other sea creatures. See how God is forming and then he's filling. Day 3, verses 9 through 13, God separates the land from the sea. The land appears and it's surrounded by the sea. And on that day, God creates vegetation and plants and the the seeds and the trees. But on the corresponding day, he'll now fill that in that habitation with inhabitants. On the corresponding day, day six, verse 24 and following, God fills that habitation, the land with living creatures, livestock, creeping things and beasts. And of course, the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man. Do you see these formulas and patterns in this passage? Let me just draw your attention quickly in the survey. God creates, and then God sees his work, and he pronounces it as, it's okay. No, it's good. In fact, it's all very good. It's just the way it was meant to be. And also you'll notice that God, when he creates, and he forms, and he fills, how does he do it? He creates by his word. And God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. And there is. And again, it's telling us God's all-powerful. When you speak and everyone obeys, that says power. When I speak in my household, dinner, or this would be more my wife, she obviously doesn't have perfect authority because we kind of come in our own time at times and we need to repent of this. We need to jump and get into action and get to the table. Please. Or when I say to my students, okay, let's quiet down and have your books open. Some do it and some don't. All the kids in here do. They're wonderful students. But it's a sign of my lack of authority or my authority. But when God speaks, it happens. Let there be and there is. And the point of Genesis 1 is God is the boss. Perfect authority. So God let, said, let there be. That characterizes every day of creation. God said, let there be, and there was. At least until day six. And when God creates the pinnacle of his creation, saving the best for the last, at the crescendo of creation, the formula changes as he creates mankind. Verse 26. And God said, let there be man, and poof, there was man. No. God said, let us, Trinitarian Council, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us... Make man in our image. Wow. After our likeness. And, I, and there's debate. I take image and likeness to be synonymous in many respects. Let us make man in our image, like us. 
Man is distinct, clearly, here, and different from the animal world, from the rest of creation. And there's this personal touch in the creation of man. Instead of standing at a distance and just speaking us into existence, it it records in a more detailed uh, account, Genesis 2, not a contradictory, but a complementary, more detailed account, in the creation of man, it's very intimate. Instead of speaking us into existence from a distance, it says, verse 7, God formed man from the dust. You see the, the potter's hands on the clay. He formed man from the dust, from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And here man becomes a creature with an eternal, immortal, immaterial soul. We're not just animals living on instinct. We're so much more. It's interesting that in Genesis 1, in covering the creation of the inanimate world, creation, the name Elohim is used over and over again. A name that speaks to God's power and might. But beginning in Genesis 2, with the detailed account of man's fashioning and creation, the personal name of God appears, Yahweh. Translated in our Bibles, capitals, L-O-R-D, Lord. Man is unique. Man is special. Is meant for rulership in God's world, for relationship with the Creator, distinct from the animals. And because of this, man is given the responsibility to rule over creation. Man alone is ready for this because man alone is made in God's image. Now, the all-important question today is, what makes up the image? Why are we image bearers of God? In what sense? Hundreds of books have been written on this, seeking to answer the question, to define what the image of God is in man, in what way is man imaging God. There is a long-standing debate. Is it is it our reason that makes us image bearers? Is it our emotion? Is it that we're moral beings? Is it some physical feature of our human body, like that we walk erect? Some have postulated, etc., etc. As we'll see, there are various aspects to what the image of God is. But let me just make the most simple, and I think a profound statement, let me rise above the controversy and just boil it down to this. Most fundamentally, to say that we're made in the image of God is to say that we image God. We are like God. We image God. Images are created to image. Why do you set up an image of anything? To image it. Think of a statue or a portrait. It represents the thing, but it's not the thing itself. We image God. We are not divine. We're not God. We're not infinite. There's an infinite chasm between creator and man. We're finite. We have limits and boundaries. God has all the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. We are limited in those ways. We're limited by time and space and knowledge. We're finite. We don't have the incommunicable attributes of God, his omnis. We have the communicable attributes. So, basically the idea is we are like God. We image God. We bear God's image. We image him. Scholars who are familiar with the ancient Near East, for example, with the ancient world of Egypt or Assyria, they emphasize that in those cultures, it's very interesting, the king or the emperor was always regarded as the image of God, representing 
God, the gods, or the God on earth. And that kings had images of themselves erected in their land, in their provinces, to symbolize the extent of their authority. This belongs to this emperor. See his statue, see his image, see his authority is here. In the ancient Near Eastern background, God, the creator, is entrusting a kind of royal responsibility to all human beings appointing them to rule over the earth and its creatures, crowning us with glory and honor to do so. And I think this is biblically supported. For example, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Daniel 3, verse 1, it describes the statue of Nebuchadnezzar with the same Hebrew word for image. The statue represents the authority and the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Elsewhere in the ancient World, The same is true of this word image. In, in the context of Genesis 1 here, to be made in the image of God means to represent his rule over life in the domains he's created. We image him. We represent him. Wow, what an incredible purpose we have as human beings to represent God's rule and authority in his world. We're his little vice regents, his sub-rulers. We are not the king, but we represent the king. What a responsibility we have to image God and glorify God with our lives. This rulership is a stewardship. It's all his, and it's on loan for us. We're responsible for all the resources we have and to use them for his glory. We image the king. This is illustrated in Genesis 2, in that man is to care for God's garden. We're to name the animals, Adam does. God placed man on the earth to represent and continue his rulership, his rule, represent him. So, most basically, man, made in God's image, means that man is like God and represents God in God's creation. Now, we can get more specific and address the specific aspects of what this image entails. But first, let me just summarize this up. We, When we're talking about the image of God, we're talking about the image of God as a static idea. We are image bearers. It's, it's intrinsic to our value and who we are and our nature. We're image bearers. You don't do something to become an image bearer other than just be born and created in your mother's womb. There's, it's a static idea. It's who you are. But the image of God is also a dynamic idea, a functional idea. Because we are his image bearers, it's to be expressed in our lives. We're to image him, represent him for his glory in his world. So it's a static idea. We bear the image of God intrinsically. Everyone in this room does. And that's why everyone in this room has dignity and value. Should be treated well, with highest respect. All humans share certain capacities with God that allow us to image him. Those communicable attributes. For example... We're like God in that we are self-conscious and rational. We think, we reason, we originate new ideas, unlike the animal world. We evaluate ourselves. We ask the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? We're moral creatures with a sense of right and wrong, with obligation. We always feel the, the heavy weight of the ought. We ought to do this. That ought not to happen. That's not justice. Equal rights for all people. We have this moral sense and obligation, values. We have a conscience. We're relational beings. That's one of our capacities that is like God's. We are made for relationship, to love God and to love our neighbors. 
God created us to be social, social creatures. This is seen in the fact that God created them male and female. God is social and relational. You know, there's always been relationship. There's always been society. There's always been love because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're social beings made in God's image. We're creative and artistic, some more than others. But in some way, we all like to get our hands in there and create and make things new and fix things. We will see that God has called us to create and work and steward His world. We're not called to be lazy. We're called to be responsible and rule over our little corner of the universe for God's glory. Anyone here have emotions? We have emotions. We love We feel anger, righteous and unrighteous anger, sadness, grief. Where do you think we get these emotions? We get them from our God. And so in these things that are distinctive to us, these are what make us distinctive and different from the animal world. In these God-given capacities to reason, to choose, to create, to worship, we can image God in His world for His glory. What a purpose to do all things for His glory. When we were teaching our little ones the one of the catechisms, what's the chief end of man? They would say, to glorify God. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're here to glorify God. And you do that by enjoying Him. And using your image-bearing capacities for His glory. And so... That's the static side. You are an image bearer. But there's the dynamic side where to express his image, there's the functional aspect, right? Because we have been given these capacities, we are called to express those capacities in God's world to image his rule, steward his world. For example, if you look at verses 26 through 28 of chapter 1 here in Genesis, you see that related to our being Made in his image, we are to therefore have dominion over the fish, birds, livestock, over every creeping thing. Verse 28, God blessed man and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all of the earth. There's the functional expression of our image bearing. We display God and his greatness and his kingship as we rule over his world for his glory. With our God-given capacities, we're designed to represent God's rule in His world. You aren't animals. You are little sub-rulers of the King. You're vice-regents, stewards, rulers, crowned with glory and honor. So this image is personal and it's static and it's it has that aspect, the image of God. But the image of God also has that vocational, functional, dynamic aspect is to be expressed. So that's a quick survey of the image of God. So far from pessimism of secularism that says we're an accident, we're an erect, walking, talking germ, mere stardust, Carl Sagan, and far from the optimism of Eastern thought where man is God and divine, And all we need to do is look within. Isn't that like every graduation speech or Disney movie? Look within. Look within your own heart. Believe. Believe in what? I'm broken. I need to look outside myself. So far from that pessimism or that optimism about man, I need to understand that I am depraved and fallen, and yet I have dignity and value. 
We are the pinnacle of God's creation bestowed with intrinsic value and responsibility. And boy, does that have implications for the way we deal with race and gender and people who are different from us. We have a sense that they have value and worth and they should be treated well. How then shall we live? Is the question. Now, how shall we live if we are these image bearers with these mandates and responsibilities? So let's wrap it up with application. Two key words come to mind when I think about how we apply this. The fact that we are intrinsically image bearers of God and that we're to express it in his world. Two key words come to mind. Value and purpose. Value. Number one, we have value. There's dignity and worth in all human beings. We need to hear this. Humans have eternal value and worth and should be treated as such. Man's life is sacred. Mankind's life is sacred because we are created in the image of God with those capacities and with that responsibility. The image of God isn't something we do. You don't lose the image of God if you're sick or something happens to you or if you fall short in some way. You're intrinsically valuable in God's eyes. You're not junk. You shouldn't mistreat yourself. You shouldn't harm yourself. You shouldn't harm others. Take care of yourself. You are a vessel of God, of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in you as if in a temple. You're an image bearer of God. It's a static concept. And so every human being, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, deserves dignity, value, protection. No matter your class or your race, or your class or achievements, all isms are undercut. Racism, sexism, speciesism. No, I'm not sure about that one. But when we're talking about humans, this whole deal of racism, it should just be absolutely, it should not have a place in our churches. Because everyone, despite their skin color, is an image bearer of God. And it, it, it does speak into the issue of abortion. What is that? And that is the big question. In my opinion, it's a based on biblical authority, I think. That's a human being. Someone made in God's image. And we should fight to protect it. That's a debate for another time, and I'd be happy to speak with you about that later. But I'm just trying to make the point that this doctrine isn't just for people, theologians in high towers. What you think about man will affect your values and your behavior. Your beliefs will affect your values and your behavior. Man has dignity. This is fleshed out a few chapters later in Genesis 9. If you want to look at it, Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, you see the intrinsic value of all people and how life should be protected because they're human. Chapter 9 of Genesis, verses 5 through 6, And your lifeblood, your life, will be required as a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Because man is made in the image of God and has that intrinsic value and worth. If you take the life of a human, your life will be taken. God is serious about human life. This is not so with taking the life of an animal, although we should steward and respect animals and take care of them. We don't just abuse or harm animals. We should love them. We love our Finley at our house, our obnoxious little dog. We love her, but she's not made in God's image. 
To take the life of a man is murder. Or a woman is murder. And it brings with it consequences in God's world. Judgment. A capital punishment. Because man's life is sacred. He's made in God's image. He has an eternal soul. It's not a culture of death that promotes capital punishment. It's a culture that respects the image of God and man that supports capital punishment for capital crimes. Anything less dehumanizes man and the value of his life. Now that's another debate. I'm trying not to get too controversial, but do you see how these conversations start to flesh themselves out of this doctrine? Doctrine is very practical. Teaching what you believe is very practical. Every human being is endowed with value and worth and dignity and should be shown such, regardless of age, gender, ability, race, or inclinations. Even if they're your worldview opponent, they should get your respect. And that changes the way we deal with people we disagree with or we're different than. So there are isms out there that I don't agree with, but they're held by people that I should love and respect. Anyone who comes in this church should be felt loved and respected, even if we don't agree with them. And that's where real tolerance comes from, biblical tolerance, where I don't have to agree with you, but I should respect you. The tolerance of our day says you have to agree with me and in every way and absorb every worldview and every idea and just drink it down. We want to have discernment. But everyone deserves respect, even our worldview opponents. You may be unworthy as humans, depraved, sinful, like me, selfish, this side of Genesis 3, the fall, but you nevertheless are of great worth and you deserve dignity and respect. So respect yourself. Take care of your body. Take care of yourself. Value yourself. There's no place for self-harm. Take care of your body. You're here for a reason and you are valued by God and we value you. So, do you see the beautiful balance? Man is broken, but man has dignity. I I love how this is expressed by the great Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's the Messiah figure in C.S. Lewis's book where there are talking animals in Narnia. And there are these four human children wondering about their value and who they are as humans. And Aslan says to them, you come from Lord Adam and you come from Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. C.S. Lewis puts it frankly. He says, he catches the realistic biblical balance on man. He says, we are as humans capable of the loftiest nobility and the basest cruelty. One moment we behave like God in whose image we've been made, and the next we act like beasts, from whom we are meant to be completely distinct. Human beings are the inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick, universities for the acquisition of wisdom, parliaments and governments for the just rule of people. Men create church buildings where worship of God occurs, but we are also the inventors of torture chambers, concentration camps, and nuclear arsenals. Strange, bewildering paradox. We are noble and ignoble. We are rational and often irrational. We are moral and often immoral. Like God and at times bestial. This is what we call the human paradox. Depraved and yet we have dignity. And that is a healthy perspective on ourselves. 
We should live that out. So that's the static aspect, right? That's who we are. We're made in God's image, and so we should have dignity and value and treat others as such this year. How are you treating your children? How are you treating your parents, your teachers, your students, your elders, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, your wives, your husbands? And I mean, you should only have one wife and only one husband. I didn't mean that. That's another sermon. Value and dignity. But as we close, one last point of application. The other key word isn't value. The other key word is purpose. We have purpose heading into 2023. Responsibility, stewardship for the glory of God. As we saw in verses 26, 27, 28 of Genesis 1, the creation mandate, we image God. There's a functional aspect to that. We have capacities that we share with God that allow us to express his image and represent his rule in his world, to steward his resources. With these capacities in place, God has set out mandates for mankind, ordinances, or a fancy word for uh, instruction or authoritative commands. He's given us these things to do. How should we this image express itself in our fulfilling of these creation ordinances and these creation mandates? Let's just survey a couple of those Ordinances and mandates God's given us as human beings. This is part of his design, his blueprints for us as creatures in his world. He's given us the ordinance of procreation. So fill the earth, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. Doc Fish came up to me once and said, you know that ordinance is not to be fulfilled in your family alone, Mike? We have seven kids. Okay, thank you. It's a general command for all of creation to fill the earth and multiply it. This is a beautiful benediction God pronounces over man, a blessing and a command. Procreate, be fruitful, make more, have children. This, of course, is related to the ordinance of marriage, which is captured in Genesis 2, to leave and cleave and become one flesh, right? Leave, cleave, and weave is how we put it at school. Leave, cleave, and weave. It's in Genesis 2, the ordinance of marriage. Procreation and marriage, these are our responsibilities we have that we're called to. In this series, the rest of the series, we're going to consider how we as image bearers should represent God's glory in the way we parent, in the way we do marriage, how we relate to our spouse, or how we use our singleness. The image of God is to be expressed in all these arenas, in our procreation. Like the culture, the culture sees children as a burden, as a nuisance. Do you see children that way? I have family members who are mad at me every time we would announce we're having a child. How irresponsible. The having of children is now later and later and later, and it's not a priority in our culture. It's not a value. Children, though in Scripture, are a blessing, and parenting is an opportunity to represent the nature of God to a next generation, to show His justice and His Sovereignty and his love and his grace to show his hand of justice and grace to represent our God and his nature. The image of God expressed in our marriages, the best place to put on display and represent the personal and social dimensions of God's being is in the marriage. It's one of the greatest places to show God's social and personal nature is in a marriage. The wife is not the old ball and chain. You hear the guys at work talk like that? 
No, she's an image bearer and your partner. Marriage isn't disposable. It's God's idea. And to do things his way is the best way. Marriage is a sacred call to put on display the gospel. The relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Marriage is very significant. It pictures in miniature the gospel. (laughs) Wow. Marriage is sacred. In marriage, we learn so much about what God is like. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The image of God is expressed in our marriages and in our parenting. What a call. I, I might approach my parenting a little differently now. And my marriage a little differently now. I need to. And there is the mandate of labor and dominion. In verse 28, we are to fill the earth and rule over it and have dominion over it. God has designed us to work and to rule and have responsibility and to steward his world, to farm it, to manage it, to shape it, to use it for man and for the glory of God. In this series, we're going to address the fact that God has called us to work, to have responsibility over our little world, our part of the world. Laziness in adults and teenagers is not okay if you're an image bearer of God. You're called to work. Work is not a bad thing. Did you know that work was instituted before the fall? We often think that work is part of the fall. Man, work is just, I can't wait till we get to heaven and there's no work. Work, I think, will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a way to worship God and be creative and and be an image bearer. It's a beautiful thing. Work is a place where we can worship. Do you think of work as a place of worship? As a, a way to demonstrate God's glory, to represent your God? Man, this is good stuff. It's challenging. And it challenges how we steward his creation. How do I look at all the resources God has given to me to steward? You have a lot of resources, and they're not just money. You have time. How do we use our time? You have energy. There's the ordinance of rest. We're to rest. We're not God. Uh, It was Charles Spurgeon who said, God gave us sleep to remind us that we're not God. We have limits. How do you manage your energy? Do you rest? Do you set aside time for God and family? And rest because you're not infinite? How do you use your, your time? How do you use your money? So that's the dominion or the labor or the work mandate. And so instead of looking at work as I owe, I owe, off to work I go, or it's just a means to paying debt, I can work and steward and have responsibility in a way that glorifies my king. Will I do that in 2023? So the image of God is both static and dynamic. It's something we're created in. It's our value and dignity and intrinsic worth. And it's something that is dynamic. It's expressed. There's a purpose in my life as an image bearer, in my relationships, in my ordinances. And so you see how all this is so foundational to our Christian lives and to our ministry here. So in this series, we'll look at stewardship and responsibility. We'll look at work, marriage, gender roles, parenting, Rest should be practical and helpful. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have the privilege of knowing you. How incredible that we're not just forgiven, but you've made us children. You've called us children if we've believed on your son. If we've made your son our savior, we are your children, sons and daughters. And we're co-heirs with Christ. Thank you for the amazing grace you've to showered on our lives, that we would get to be your image bearers to relate to you and to represent you, to be your hands and your feet and your mouthpiece in this world. This is incredible. 
Help us to see how significant this is. Help us this year to treat others well, to see ourselves as having dignity, to take care of our bodies and ourselves, to take care of our wives and our children, our friends and family, to love all people for your glory. Help us to use all these ordinances of life for your glory. Help us to see that our purpose is grand. You've given us a tremendous call to image you in this world. Help us to live this out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.